It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. This is session number nine in a series called Spiritual Lessons from Abe Lincoln's America. Uh, interesting title, I know. Uh, I could be uh, strategically leveraging this to get you to listen to it just by calling it this, right? Cancel culture. But it's, it's a question, and that's going to play into it. Cancel culture? <laughs> it, because when we hear the words cancel culture, it means something. It means something very specific today. And yet, what I'm going to bring up is slightly different. It all plays together, but it's slightly different the way I'm going to use it today. So the idea of cancel culture, here's what Wikipedia, I'm not a big Wikipedia fan, but it's a pretty easy place to get a definition for something like cancel culture, right? Cancel culture or call-out culture is a modern form of ostracism in which someone is thrust out of social or professional circles, whether it be online or on social media or in person. Those subject to this ostracism are said to have been canceled. The expression cancel culture has mostly negative connotations and is used in debates on free speech and censorship. And I'd say for most of the Daily Thunder audience, we probably have a negative connotation towards cancel culture. It's very opposite the way the kingdom of heaven works. It's very controlling. It tells you what you need to believe instead of invites you uh, to think. And so as a result, it's, it's somewhat offensive in its very makeup and its very nature. The... Uh, the, way, the phrase I want to use is cancel culture with a question mark. So it's a little different. I'm going to basically explain to you what I mean by this. It's the question and long-held debate in the church of Jesus Christ as to whether culture is a good thing or a bad thing. Should it be canceled or should it be celebrated and utilized as a tool? So what I'm bringing up in this, which is a key issue in the antebellum era, is as a Christian, am I supposed to cancel culture in my life, like get rid of all culture and live separate from it, or am I supposed to engage that culture and become a part of it so that I can win it? How do we do this? This has been a debate from the very beginning. This is a huge issue in Christianity. A lot of denominations are based on this issue in how we process it. I don't know that I want to promise that I'm going to have a, uh, an end-all answer to it, but I definitely want to steer us uh, in this to think and to reason through this and to be sensitive to those that land differently on this than we do. Because we do not want to divide over this. What we want to understand is that there are reasonable differences that can be present in how we relate to this. But there are certain things that need to be laid out on the table that are very clear in Scripture, which would reasonably cause someone to say, well, I think we should cancel culture. We should have nothing to do with culture. So 1 John 2, 15 through 16. Do not love the world, and you could replace world with culture, or the things in the world. Like I said, you could replace world with culture. So if we did, it'd be do not love the culture or the things in the culture. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So can you understand why someone 
might lean a little more, if you were to look on the pendulum, you have, you know, Amish, you know, the complete eradication of culture. like, we will not participate in it. That's an extreme. If you're Amish, you're probably thinking, well, I don't know if that's the way that we would describe it. And then all the way to the opposite end, which is that sort of liberal Christian that is completely, you can't even tell the difference between them and the culture. They're just like the culture. That's, of course, how they're winning it, right, is to become like it. And, you know, so most of us probably fall somewhere in between where we're like, ah, it's a little too much. But where do we get our gauge from? Like, uh, what is the right amount of culture? What is the wrong amount of culture? When do you know that it's like you've, you've gone too far in that? And these are issues that have spiked debates and distraction in the body of Christ for a long time. So I didn't come up with this. I, I usually like to have my own analogies, and so it's really hard when I have to use someone else's analogy. I just thought it was a good one. And it, you know, have you ever heard an analogy where you're like, oh boy, now if I use that, I have to say. So this is something I was, I was reading through something on, I think it was crosswalk.com, and I'm, I'm not even trying to recommend that, right? And, but I saw this, and I was like, that's actually a really good analogy. So hey, credit where credit is due. The boat analogy. What do we do with all this water? So imagine that the water is the culture. It's the world. So, but we have a boat. Now, for many of us, we immediately conclude, it's like, well, a boat is meant to be on the water. Hey, let's get out in it. At the same time, when you read certain scriptures, you have to recognize that it's like, that's a lot of danger out there. I do not want that water in my boat. And so you'll see three different responses to this that I'm going to lay out. The first one is, take the boat completely out of the water. No, I can have nothing to do with this water, and so I'm going to remove the boat from the water and keep it on the, the shoreline, lest any of that infect this boat. The second one is stick the water in the boat. <laughs> so not many of us are probably going to land there, but ironically, the propensity to do this is huge. You see, most of us see that water and we see the boat and we recognize that the water is not supposed to go in the boat lest the boat sink. However, whereas, so I'm not going to say that many of you are susceptible to concluding that this is a right conclusion of how God intended us to handle the water. I'm just saying it is one of the options. Hey, I have a boat and I have water. Should I stick the water in the boat? No, that violates the very rule of flotation, right? That isn't how it works. And the third option, put the boat in the water and keep the water out of the boat. And I would say, all right, we're getting a lot closer, right? This is something that makes sense. So what is a boat designed for? To float. It is not designed to sink. It is designed to float. It is meant to handle water. So if we liken that water to the culture, we recognize that if the analogy was true, okay, so say, you know, I like it, but I could understand that there could be disagreement where people are saying, I, we shouldn't even come close to this water. And I get that. I really do. I am a, a, I'm one who espouses the ideas of purity. I am not one, I, I espouse the ideas of holiness. I don't just desire us to be like the world. I don't want us to, as the church, become like the world. At the same time, we have this world. So how do we engage with this world? My desire is to reach those in this world that Jesus Christ loves so much, that the Father loves so much that he gave his only begotten son. So what do we do with our boat? How do we relate to the water? 
And so here's my conclusion statement. This is my one thing. You can take this away. And that is we relate to it differently than everyone else. We're Christians. So when someone relates to the water like everyone else, say everyone else is swimming in it and splashing everyone and dunking people, you see, we as believers recognize that we have a boat. And so therefore, we recognize that we need to be in this boat. And there needs to be a rightful separation where we are other than the world, but we still recognize that we are in the world. But we don't want to be of the world. Ah! And so this is the great challenge that we wrestle with. And there needs to be a grace given to others around us to recognize that they're wrestling with it too. The same spirit, the same word of God, but the way we're appropriating it, we may disagree at times. It's interesting. He was even on the way over here. I was listening to Ben Price's February 8th uh, message, or is it 9th, Hudson? Do you know what uh, the date is for that one? The 9th? February 9th, uh, Daily Thunder, where he, I think it's called But Say Nil. Really good message. And he asked the question, is comedy something that Christians should participate in? I mean, because he's a comedian. I mean, should, should comedy be something that we participate in, or is it innately ungodly? <laughs> Very good question, and he walks through that. That's sort of the, a similar theme here. With the issue, like, I just finished uh, producing a movie here in Colorado, and there's been a lot of debate. Should is there even such a thing as a Christian movie? Or is movie evil in and of itself? A theater production, is the, are these evil in and of themselves? Or are they something that can be wielded to bring forth something edifying? Now, we could disagree on that. And obviously, the fact that I have participated in productions shows a little of my hand that I believe that it can be leveraged, but it has to be leveraged with eyes wide open. And it cannot be just for entertainment. It needs to be for edification. It needs to communicate something that is going to better the people that are engaging with it as opposed to just past time. In other words, how do we as Christians reason through these things? And they're all very, very important. Abe Lincoln's doctor's dog. This goes back to, it's an old Disney movie with Kurt Russell in it. And uh, there was some some line in the movie that was talking about, I think it was some television guy that was saying the, the three things that most people want to see a show on, like a television uh, program on, are Abe Lincoln. Everyone is interested in Abe Lincoln. Everyone's interested in doctors, uh, show shows about doctors, and dogs. <laughs> so <laughs> the proposal in the, in the movie was, what about a, a show called Abe Lincoln's Doctor's Dog? Now, it's, it's interesting. This has really nothing to do with anything I'm talking about other than to say it is fascinating that Abe Lincoln draws so much attention. And, you know, as I go through this, one of the interesting things that Abe Lincoln had to deal with, he was in a culture, but how did he engage with that culture? How did he walk through it to the point where he could better that culture or help that culture as opposed to just become like it. Very interesting tightrope uh, walking uh, pr project he had. So Leo Tolstoy uh, said this, Abraham Lincoln is the only real giant of all the great national heroes and statesmen of history. That's a pretty big statement. 
And it's funny, you know, because who would ever care what Karl Marx had to say? And the fact, I even sort of wonder, it's like, did he really say this? But this is uh, supposedly Karl Marx speaking. Abraham Lincoln is one of the rare men who succeed in becoming great without ceasing to be good. It's an interesting statement. It's almost like for our message, we could say, he was a man who knew how to stay in the boat, but at the same time, traverse the entire lake. It's like, wow, there's very few people that can do that effectively and actually bring more people into his boat. I mean, how did he do that? David Reynolds uh, just says there are over 16,000 books on Lincoln, more books than any on any other historical figure except Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? I mean, what is it about this guy that draws so much uh, attention and interest and intrigue? So David Reynolds also says, Ralph Waldo Emerson noted that genius lies in being altogether receptive and letting the world do all and suffering the spirit of the hour to pass unobstructed through the mind. For Lincoln, this meant traversing a culture's idioms, what Emerson called the whole scale of the language from the most elegant to the most low and vile. I'm not exactly sure how I like the quote, and you could say, why did you even put it in? I'm just saying that there is a battle over Lincoln of how people perceive him. Why was he successful? Some people propose the fact that Lincoln was successful because he, in a sense, jumped in the water. And I would lean on a different end of the spectrum and say, I believe he was successful because he was in the water, but not of it. You see the difference between the two? And so this is one of those quotes that happens to lean more towards, I think he just jumped in the water. I think that's why everyone in the water was like, yeah, he's in the water here with us. And I'm not going to argue that except for the fact that I think he was in the boat while in the water. And so as a result, everyone's like, yeah, he's in the water with us. He's not just up on the beach. He's here. He's, he's actually sharing our challenges. But what, what's that? He's in a boat. He's different than us. A great style of hero, with a question mark at the end. So this is Ralph Waldo Emerson. He, he gave an article or an essay called Greatness. He was a big fan of Lincoln. A great style of hero draws equally all classes, all the extremes of society, till we say the very dogs believe in him. Abraham Lincoln is perhaps the most remarkable example of this class that we have seen. A man who was at home and welcome with the humblest and with a spirit and a practical vein in the times of terror that commanded the admiration of the wisest. His heart was as great as the world, but there was no room in it to hold the memory of a wrong. So there's a lot of secular people that have been very impacted and impressed. I could say a lot of people in the water that are very impressed with this man. I don't know that I just want to say, hey, we should all become like Lincoln. But what I'm saying is Lincoln had the challenge we have. It's the same challenge the church has. I want to influence those in the water, but how do I get and engage in this water without being destroyed? How can I enter culture without letting culture define me, shape me? Become excellent on the water not in it. So this is my, this is going to be my Lincoln leadership secret for this round. I'm going to read it again. Become excellent on the water, not in it. So if you have a boat, which you do, it's called a human life, and you have armor that is given to you by the king of kings that is waterproof, you have what you need, all that you need for life and godliness to actually 
bring the gospel into this world, but you have to take a step into some dangerous territory. If you just stay in your mountain cabin, far away from the, the culture, you could be spared all of the challenges, and maybe you'd have less temptation of having water splash into your boat, right? And yet the Christian life seems to be caught in this middle point where it's not supposed to retreat, it's supposed to advance, but where it advances, it's advancing into darkness, into territory that is evil. Whoa, how do we do this, Lord? And of course, that's, that's why I do what I do. It's called discipleship. How do we live in this body, in this world, without allowing that world to get into this body, but what's inside this body to get into this world and change it? Whoa, there's Christianity for you right there. So I have a sub-statement uh, under this. It's okay to know culture, even <clears throat> use culture, but don't be shaped by culture. So there's various things, like clothing. That's a cultural element. As far as I know, Jesus wore the cultural clothing of his day. There are vehicles that are in a culture, and so transportation is defined. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to use a bike from 700 years ago. I'm going to use a bike from today. You could say, that's culture. Sure, it is, but it does not have a moral value to it, and it should not in, 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 enter into my soul and alter me, and if it starts to and it becomes an idolatrous thing, it needs to be cut off. I need to make sure that I have that waterproof coating on as I enter into this. There was one statement, one of my good friends, Aaron Burns, uh, who was directing the movie that I was just participating in, he made a statement at a, it was like a Christian Worldview Film Festival type of event, I think it was that, and he, he was in, on a panel discussion uh, for directors and producers of how do we bring Christianity, the Word of God, into this element? How do we properly use this tool of movie making without letting the world's version of movie making define how we use it? It's a very good question. And he, one of the statements he said really impacted me. I've thought about it a lot. And that is, it's not just the outcome of the movie, like what's going to be on the screen. It's the process of making it. That if I have to ask my actor to compromise and to actually forsake what he believes as a Christian in order to make a scene that may be clean, and you don't see anything in the final edited uh, version, then I am violating the very nature of what I'm called to do. You're suddenly in the water instead of on the water. And I, I was really fascinated about that. Because even then he talked about the fact that a lot of actors that may even come and work on one of his sets, they may not all be Christian. And if he's going to ask them to do something that he himself would not feel comfortable doing in his own life, he cannot do that. Otherwise, he would be in the water, not on the water. Utilizing the water, the culture, but not letting it use you. John 17, 11, and 14. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. He's speaking about his disciples. He's speaking about us. And I come to you. This is called the high priestly prayer typically in John 17. And so it's Jesus talking to his father. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
So when you get that phrase, in the world but not of it, it actually is sort of derived from John 17. It's a good statement. It's a, it's a great way of enunciating what it means to be on the water. In, uh, in the world but not of it. Not in the water, if you want to say it that way. Now listen to the next verse. Oh, I have a little sub-slide in between. Sorry, guys. The kicker. God's desire isn't that we escape but that we take the offensive and change the world. God, when he rescues us at the cross, it's not to remove us and take us to heaven. And many of us have had that thought over time. It's like, wait a minute here. Jesus, you've already done the work, and obviously you don't want me in the world, so why don't we uh, vamoose? Why don't we get out of here? Instead, the idea seems to be that he knows very well where he's left us, and he has an intention for how we handle the water. He's given us a boat. He's waterproofed the boat. He's put armor about it so that we have, we're supplied everything we need to actually engage in this boat, in this water, without the water getting into the boat. Whew, the gospel. So listen to this. I call it the kicker. John 17, 15. It's the next verse. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus, you could, you could pray that. It's okay. Save us from this world. No, I do not pray that you should take them out of this world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. And I have a parenthetical statement that I added, but I, just to help you understand what he's meaning. So you should keep, but that you should keep them from the evil one while they are in the world. So let me read that statement again. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one while they are in the world. That's what his prayer is, that we would know how to be in the boat and in the world, but not have that world get in us and not have us get our boat turned over where we end up in the world, but that we could influence and change the world somehow utilizing this water to the advancement of the glory of God. Hmm. Again, I recognize that there are debate points and there are reasonable appeals that can be made to this. And you may not land exactly where I land and I may not land exactly where you land. But can we give grace to one another to recognize we're all in this together, trying to navigate through this very challenging issue of how we live our lives as believers in a darkening world to shine light? How do we navigate like a Lincoln to step into a leadership position and to deal with a whole bunch of people that are in the water and somehow lead them into the boat? What does that look like for each of us? So here are the leadership secrets of Lincoln that we've covered so far. Number one, draw loving lines, not hard lines. Number two, approach the nasty stuff like a Quaker. Number three, never ever send the first draft. Number four, listen like everyone in the room is smarter than you. Number five, bust through the cultural blind spots. Number six, inspire a Clapham sect in your living room. Number seven, slavery is not supposed to be a permanent condition. Number eight, define your hills to die on so you know where not to perish. And today's, become excellent on the water, not in it. Lord, we ask for that grace. We ask for that wisdom that you would sharpen us to know as believers how to live this life in this body, in this world, without letting that world get in this body. But what is in this body 
this gospel, this power, this Holy Spirit, that you would change the world in and through our lives. We ask for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.